Chapter Nine of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Chapter Nine. I did not sleep well. To begin with, I read late. Not till two in the morning did I reach up and turn out the kerosene reading lamp which Wada had purchased and installed for me. I was asleep immediately, perfect sleep being perhaps my greatest gift, but almost immediately I was awake again, and thereafter with dozings and catnaps and restless tossings I struggled to win to sleep, then gave it up for of all things in my state of jangled nerves to be afflicted with hives and still again to be afflicted with hives in cold winter weather at four i lighted up and went to reading forgetting my irritated skin in vernon lee's delightful screed against william james and as well to believe i was on the weather side of the ship and from overhead through the deck came the steady footfalls of some officer on watch I knew that they were not the steps of Mr. Pike, and wondered whether they were Mr. Mellaire's or the pilot's. Somebody above there was awake. The work was going on, the vigilant seeing and overseeing, that, I could plainly conclude, would go on through every hour of all the hours on the voyage. At half-past four I heard the steward's alarm go off, instantly suppressed, and five minutes later I lifted my hand to motion him in through my open door. What I desired was a cup of coffee, and Wada had been with me through too many years for me to doubt that he had given the steward precise instructions and turned over to him my coffee and my coffee-making apparatus. The steward was a jewel. In ten minutes he served me with a perfect cup of coffee. I read on until daylight, and half-past eight found me, breakfast in bed finished, dressed and shaved, and on deck. We were still towing, but all sails were set to a light favoring breeze from the north. In the chart-room Captain West and the pilot were smoking cigars. At the wheel I noted what I decided at once was an efficient. He was not a large man, if anything he was undersized but his countenance was broad-browed and intelligently formed. Tom, I later learned, was his name, Tom Spink, an Englishman. He was blue-eyed, fair-skinned, well-grizzled, and, to the eye, a hale fifty years of age. His reply of, "'Good morning, sir,' was cheery, and he smiled as he uttered the simple phrase. He did not look sailor-like, as did Henry, the training-ship boy, and yet I felt at once that he was a sailor, and an able one. It was Mr. Pike's watch, and on asking him about Tom, he grudgingly admitted that the man was the best of the boiling. Miss West emerged from the chart-house, with a rosy morning face, and her vital, springy limb-movement, and immediately began establishing her contacts. On asking how I had slept, and when I said wretchedly, she demanded an explanation. I told her of my affliction of hives and showed her the lumps on my wrists. "'Your blood needs thinning and cooling,' she adjudged promptly. "'Wait a minute. I'll see what can be done for you.' And with that she was away and below and back in a trice, in her hand a part glass of water into which she stirred a teaspoonful of cream of tartar. "'Drink it,' she ordered, as a matter of course. "'I drank it. 
and at eleven in the morning she came up to my deck chair with a second dose of the stuff also she reproached me soundly for permitting wada to feed meat to possum it was from her that wada and i learned how mortal a sin it was to give meat to a young puppy furthermore she laid down the law and the diet for possum not alone to me and wada but to the steward the carpenter and mr mallaire of the latter two because they ate by themselves in the big after-room and because possum played there she was especially suspicious and she was outspoken in voicing her suspicions to their faces the carpenter mumbled embarrassed asseverations in broken english of past present and future innocence the while he humbly scraped and shuffled before her on his huge feet mr mallaire's protestations were of the same nature save that they were made with the grace and suavity of a chesterfield in short possum's diet raised quite a tempest in the elsinore teapot and by the time it was over miss west had established this particular contact with me and given me a feeling that we were the mutual owners of the puppy i noticed later in the day that it was to miss west that wada went for instructions as to the quantity of warm water he must use to dilute possum's condensed milk lunch won my continued approbation of the cook in the afternoon i made a trip forward to the galley to make his acquaintance to all intents he was a chinese until he spoke whereupon measured by his speech alone he was an englishman in fact so cultured was his speech that i can fairly say it was vested with an oxford accent he too was old fully sixty he acknowledged fifty-nine three things about him were markedly conspicuous his smile that embraced all his clean-shaven asiatic face and asiatic eyes his even rowed white and perfect teeth which i deemed false until wada ascertained otherwise for me and his hands and feet it was his hands ridiculously small and beautifully modelled that led my scrutiny to his feet they too were ridiculously small and very neatly almost dandifiedly shod we had put the pilot off at midday but the britannia towed us well into the afternoon and did not cast us off until the ocean was wide about us and the land a faint blur on the western horizon here at the moment of leaving the tug we made our departure that is to say technically began the voyage despite the fact that we had already travelled a full twenty-four hours away from baltimore it was about the time of casting off when i was leaning on the poop rail gazing forward when miss west joined me she had been busy below all day and had just come up as she put it for a breath of air she surveyed the sky in weatherwise fashion for a full five minutes then remarked the barometer's very high thirty point sixty this light north wind won't last it will either go into a calm or work around into a northeast gale which would you prefer i asked the gale by all means it will help us off the land and it will put me through my torment of seasickness more quickly oh yes she added i'm a good sailor but i do suffer dreadfully at the beginning of every voyage you probably won't see me for a couple of days now that's why i've been so busy getting settled first lord nelson i have read never got over his squeamishness at sea i said 
"'And I've seen father seasick on occasion,' she answered. "'Yes, and some of the strongest, hardest sailors I have ever known.' Mr. Pike here joined us for a moment, ceasing from his everlasting pacing up and down to lean with us on the poop-rail. Many of the crew were in evidence, pulling on ropes on the main deck below us. To my inexperienced eye, they appeared more unprepossessing than ever. "'A pretty scraggly crew, Mr. Pike,' Miss West remarked. "'The worst ever,' he growled, "'and I've seen some pretty bad ones. "'We're teaching them the ropes just now, most of them. "'They look starved,' I commented. "'They are. They almost always are,' Miss West answered, "'and her eyes roved over them in the same appraising, "'cattle-buyer's fashion I had marked in Mr. Pike.' but they'll fatten up with regular hours no whiskey and solid food won't they mr pike oh sure they always do and you'll see them liven up when we get them in hand maybe they're a measly lot though i looked aloft at the vast towers of canvas our four masks seemed to have flowered into all the sails possible yet the sailors beneath us under mr mallard's direction were setting triangular sails like jibs between the masts and there were so many that they overlapped one another the slowness and clumsiness with which the men handled these small sails led me to ask but what would you do mr pike with a green crew like this if you were caught right now in the storm with all this canvas spread he shrugged his shoulders, as if I had asked what he would do in an earthquake with two rows of New York skyscrapers falling on his head from both sides of the street. Do, Miss West answered for him. We'd get the sail off. Oh, it could be done, Mr. Pathurst, with any kind of crew. If it couldn't, I should have been drowned long ago. Sure, Mr. Pike upheld her. So would I. The officers can perform miracles with the most worthless sailors, in a pinch, Miss West went on. Again Mr. Pike nodded his head and agreed, and I noted his two big paws, relaxed the moment before, and drooping over the rail, quite unconsciously tensed and folded themselves into fists. Also I noted fresh abrasions on the knuckles. Miss West laughed heartily, as from some recollection. I remember one time when we sailed from San Francisco with a most hopeless crew. It was in the Lila Rock. You remember her, Mr. Pike? Your father's fifth command, he nodded. Lost on the west coast afterwards, went ashore in that big earthquake and tidal wave. Parted her anchors, and when she hit under the cliff, the cliff fell on her. That's the ship. Well... Our crew seemed mostly cowboys and bricklayers and tramps, and more tramps than anything else. Where the boarding-house masters got them was beyond imagining. A number of them were shanghaied, that was certain. You should have seen them when they were first sent aloft. Again she laughed. It was better than circus clowns, and scarcely had the tug cast us off, outside the heads, when it began to blow up and we began to shorten down and then our mates performed miracles. You remember Mr. Harding, Silas Harding? Don't I, though, Mr. Pike proclaimed enthusiastically. He was some man, and he must have been an old man even then. He was, and a terrible man, she concurred, and added almost reverently, and a wonderful man. She turned her face to me. He was our mate. The men were seasick and miserable and green. But Mr. Harding got sail off the Lila Rock just the same. 
What I wanted to tell you was this. I was on the poop, just like I am now, and Mr. Harding had a lot of those miserable sick men putting gaskets on the main lower topsail. How far would that be above the deck, Mr. Pike? Let me see, the Lila Rook. Mr. Pike paused to consider. Oh, say around a hundred feet. I saw it myself, one of the green hands, a tramp, and he must already have got a taste of Mr. Harding, fell off the lower topsail yard. I was only a little girl, but it looked like certain death, for he was falling from the weather side of the yard straight down on deck, but he fell into the belly of the mainsail, breaking his fall, turned a somersault, and landed on his feet on deck and unhurt, and he landed right aside of Mr. Harding facing him. I don't know which was the more astonished, but I think Mr. Harding was, for he stood there petrified. He had expected the man to be killed. Not so the man. He took one look at Mr. Harding, then made a wild jump for the rigging, and climbed right back up to that topsail yard. Miss West and the mate laughed so heartily that they scarcely heard me say, Astonishing! Think of the jar to the man's nerve falling to apparent death that way. He'd been jarred harder by Silas Harding, I guess, was Mr. Pike's remark, with another burst of laughter in which Miss West joined. Which was all very well, in a way. Ships were ships, and judging from what I had seen of our present crew, harsh treatment was necessary. But that a young woman of the niceness of Miss West should know of such things, and be so saturated in this side of ship life, was not nice. It was not nice for me, though it interested me, I confess, and strengthened my grip on reality. Yet it meant a hardening of one's fibres, and I did not like to think of Miss West being so hardened. I looked at her and could not help marking again the fineness and firmness of her skin. Her hair was dark, as were her eyebrows, which were almost straight and rather low over her long eyes. Gray her eyes were, a warm gray, and very steady and direct in expression, intelligent and alive. Perhaps, taking her face as a whole, the most noteworthy expression of it was a great calm. She seemed always in repose, at peace with herself and with the external world. The most beautiful feature were her eyes, framed in lashes as dark as her brows and hair. The most admirable feature was her nose, quite straight, very straight, and just the slightest trifle too long. In this it was reminiscent of her father's nose. But the perfect modeling of the bridge and nostrils conveyed an indescribable advertisement of race and blood. Hers was a slender-lipped, sensitive, sensible, and generous mouth, generous not so much in size, which was quite average, but generous rather in tolerance, in power, and in laughter. All the health and buoyancy of her was in her mouth as well as in her eyes. She rarely exposed her teeth in smiling, for which purpose she seemed chiefly to employ her eyes, but when she laughed she showed strong white teeth, even not babyish in their smallness, but just the firm, sensible, normal size one would expect in a woman as healthy and normal as she. I would never have called her beautiful, and yet she possessed many of the factors that go to compose feminine beauty. She had all the beauty of coloring, a white skin that was healthy white, 
and that was emphasized by the darkness of her lashes, brows, and hair. And, in the same way, the darkness of lashes and brows and the whiteness of skin set off the warm gray of her eyes. The forehead was, well, medium broad and medium high and quite smooth. No lines or hints of lines were there, suggestive of nervousness, of blue days of depression and white nights of insomnia. Oh, she bore all the marks of a healthy human female who never worried, nor was vexed in the spirit of her, and in whose body every process and function was frictionless and automatic. Miss West is posed to me as quite a weather prophet, I said to the mate. Now what is your forecast of our coming weather? She ought to be, was Mr. Pike's reply, as he lifted his glance across the smooth swell of sea to the sky. This ain't the first time she's been on the North Atlantic in winter. He debated a moment as he studied the sea and sky. I should say, considering the high barometer, we ought to get a mild gale from the northeast or a calm, with the chances in favor of the calm. She favored me with a triumphant smile and suddenly clutched the rail as the Elsinore lifted on an unusually large swell and sank into the trough with a roll from windward that flapped all the sails in hall of thunder. The calm has it, Miss West said, with just a hint of grimness, and if this keeps up I'll be in my bunk in about five minutes. She waved aside all sympathy. Oh, don't bother about me, Mr. Pathurst. Seasickness is only detestable and horrid, like sleet and muddy weather and poison ivy. Besides, I'd rather be seasick than have the hives. Something went wrong with the men below us on the deck, some stupidity or blunder that was made aware to us by Mr. Mallard's raised voice. Like Mr. Pike, he had a way of snarling at the sailors that was distinctly unpleasant to the ear. On the faces of several of the sailors, bruises were in evidence. One, in particular, had an eye so swollen that it was closed. Looks as if he had run against a stanchion in the dark, I observed. Most eloquent and most unconscious was a quick flash of Miss West's eyes to Mr. Pike's big paws, with freshly abraded knuckles resting on the rail. It was a stab of hurt to me. She knew. End of chapter 9